0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us.
1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Bryce. And I'm Mike. And today we jump into one of the funnest and most exciting and yet most speculated chapters of all of the book of Revelation, and that is Revelation chapter 13, the beast that rises out of the sea, the mark of the beast, the number of the beast, and all those scary things. And we're going to see if we can make it a whole lot less scary and applicable in everyday lives, and we're going to focus on what does the text say and what does modern revelation reveal about
0: the text. So Mike, tell us about the beast coming out of the sea. Okay. So before I talk about the bees coming out of the sea, just really quick, I want to talk a little bit about where I think John is. I think John is in the temple in, uh, in heaven. I think he's in the Holy of Holies. And the reason why I think this is because of other texts that are not in the Bible. So there's a text called the apocalypse of Abraham. And in that text, Abraham is brought up into the heavens and he sees everything. He sees everything played out. And God says to him, the firmament on which you stand is the veil, and so I, I want to just this is this is a little bit difficult for moderns to get get wrap their heads around, but here's the here's the idea: above the earth is this firmament. It's this. It's made of something. The ancients believed that there was a, a like a dome over the earth that kept waters above the firmament. The rockia is the word that is used. And the reason why the, the thunder made the sound it was, it did, because they thought that maybe it was made of this thin metal. And so you hear that whoo, sound of thunder and they thought, well, the, the firmament is shaking. It's moving and the waters are coming up. And the ancients believed, well, there was water up there because they'd get hit in the face with water. And so there must be water up there. Plus it's blue. So hello, science right? And that's what they thought. Well, in the apocalypse of Abraham, Abraham's brought through the waters into the heavens, and he sees the veil of the temple um, underneath him like a screen. And he sees the history of the whole world played out in front of him. Uh, And it says, look now beneath your feet at the firmament and understand the creation that was depicted of old on this expanse, apocalypse of Abraham 21.1. So the point is, is that he sees the stuff. Now, this is not so unlike Moses. Uh, Moses 1 says, there was not a soul which he beheld not, meaning Moses, and he discerned them by the spirit of God. And so John is seeing this stuff played out. And so He sees these beasts and there's a couple of them. There's a sea beast and there's a land beast. And I think John's standing with God and he's looking at the veil and he sees all this stuff. And like we talked about in Revelation 12, and if you haven't listened to the Revelation 12 podcast, may I invite you listeners to listen to that. This is repetition. And so he sees this really scary looking beast uh, come out of the ocean and it's got a bunch of heads. And like I said, Bryce said, it's kind of scary. Um, I put a fun picture On the show notes, right out of Martin Luther's Bible, that's kind of fun. And on the right-hand side, you can see the seven heads of this critter, and it's not exactly depicted correctly, out you know, as the Bible reads. But that's okay because it's fun. And on the left-hand corner, you see the land beast. And so, what are they? I don't know. But okay, so here, here, here's what I think is going on. I think that the the sea beast is political, and it causes everybody to like worship. The dragon it gets authority from the dragon, and so I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Verse one of chapter thirteen: I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns. So it's got uh, a crowns on its head, and th- on the heads were the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat. And his authority. So a couple thoughts. In one sense, the beast is a parody or a pun and it's punning on God. In other words, the beast is, is copying God. Jesus came from the heavens and he got his authority and his seat and his power from his father. And this beast gets these same things from the dragon. So John's playing with, the, with these images. But then it says this. It essentially says I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? Now this is, this is once again, some pun, some punning going on. The question asked who is like the beast is totally ironic because if you read Exodus 8, Deuteronomy 3, Isaiah 40, it's all over in Isaiah and it's in Psalm. In other words, God is great. Who is like God? And so once again, John is showing that the beast is, it's an imitation and he's trying to, to imitate God. So that's that's a first introduction. The political beast is the sea beast. And then another beast is going to pop up in verse 11. And I'm going to call that the land beast. It says that the beast comes up out of the earth and he speaks as a dragon. Verse 12 says, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So many ways to read the text. But one way to read this is that this is an edict against emperor worship. People in John's day the Christians were faced with having to worship the emperors and and worship them as God. Now there's lots of ways to slice this. I don't necessarily think that anybody believed, for example, that they were God, but you kind of had to pinch some incense in your local shrine and say, yeah, Caesar is God, etc. But I think what John's trying to say is that uh, there's God and then there's these kingdoms and they're at war. And I think he's subtly attacking Rome, which is really interesting because if you read Romans and I think it's chapter 13, there's this reference to, we need to pay honor to the powers that be. And then revelation is a totally different message. And it's, Hey, this power, this empire that we think is so great is going to fall. And so I think this is, if we're going to read the text in John's day, I think this is what's happening here, at least on one level. What do you think, Bryce? Well, there's also, you know, when,
1: when, when John makes reference to a beast that looks like a leopard, a bear, and a lion, those come right out of Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, is it 7? 6 and 7. Daniel has several visions. And let's go back to Daniel 2, where this time it's metals. It's metals making an image. And he sees a head of gold, arms of silver, uh, chest of of brass, and then legs of iron, and then feet with iron mixed in clay, and, and then in the interpretation of that, oh, he sees a, a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and the, in the interpretation, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon is the head. So there's one world empire, Babylonian empire, and all the havoc that they wreaked are going to be replaced by another empire, um, the Medo-Persian empire conquers the Babylonians, and then comes Greece. And then comes Rome, and empire after empire after empire, and then the stone cut out of the mountain without hands crushes them all. And the interpretation is that man is trying to rule, and they're not doing a very good job. And they rule with blood and horror. They rule with guns. They rule with force. But the rule in Revelation chapter 13, here's the rule for all of you who are the victim of the beast. Um, even all the way down to a schoolyard bully, if you are the victim of a beast, of the political machine that uses force and terror and anger and hatred to rule, here's the hope of everyone. Verse 10, the rule is, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Eventually, all of these kingdoms will disintegrate and fall apart. Communism fell. Fascism fell. Nazism fell. All these machines that ruled and tormented and hurt are going to fall because God's right is it is to govern, and He will govern. So, in the meantime, be careful with these beasts because don't get caught up into them. And that leads us into the mark of the beast. But I, I like the idea here of don't be fooled. D- they're not great. They're not. They may rule with power. They may rule with the sword. But anyone who rules with the sword will be defeated by the sword. And eventually it's going to fall apart. You hold on faithful. Don't let the mark of the beast upon you
0: um, because they're all going to fall apart. I think another thing here, Bryce, too, is the idea of political affiliation. And if you think about it, there's members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints all across the world. Many of them are in communist nations. There's many members of the church that are maybe even communist. That's the party that's in power. And I think what John's trying to say is, this stuff just comes and goes. Um, I teach a lot of young men that really love sports, and so this analogy may work for some, but, and I have all boys, but I say things like, hey, whatever team you think is awesome right now and that won the NBA championship or won the Super Bowl, talk to me next year. And that's one thing sports teaches us. And this is another thing John's trying to say is this stuff comes and goes with the wind. Sometimes when I talk to people who don't necessarily like, I I live in America, they don't necessarily like the president. I say, don't worry about it because in four years, we'll get a new one. And if they reelect this one, don't worry, in four more years, we'll get a new one. And that's kind of the nature of politics. Um, I think that this entire chapter is punning on Satan wanting to be like Jesus. Just a couple quick analogies. Both the beast and Jesus have swords. If you read Revelation 1 and you read this chapter, they both have swords. They both have horns. They both have followers who carry their name on their foreheads. They both have authority over the nations. They're both worshiped. Both have a mortal wound. It says in Revelation 5, 6, it says that this individual had a wound that was healed. Jesus had a wound and he, it was a mortal wound, but he was healed, he was resurrected. So we could go on and on and on. That John is trying to show, in my opinion, don't let anything take the place of Jesus. Don't be fooled by an imitation. Yeah.
1: Don't, no matter how powerful it may look like, the whole point of King Benjamin's address is you need to learn one lesson. And the lesson is that God is great and that man is nothing, our own nothingness. But we think we're awesome. <laughs> but when we get that mixed up, when we think man is great, yeah. we end up thinking that God is nothing and then we end up being destroyed. And so hang in there. Don't be fooled by these imitations. They will come and go. As powerful as they may seem today, as ruling as they are, as as mighty as they have become, um, they will come and go. But don't be fooled by them, which leads us, I think, to... Um, I'm going to jump in and talk about the mark of the beast here. At the very end of Revelation chapter 13, um, just like we've seen Heavenly Father is trying to put a mark on our foreheads, the beast is the ultimate imitator, and he wants his mark on our foreheads. And so in verse 16, he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. In other words, if you want to play in the world's playground, you're going to have to wear the world's mark. And that's how they get you. That's how they destroy you, is if you don't put our mark on, you can't play in our playground. And that's how the world gets you. And so what does all of this mean? Let me give you an interpretation from the Book of Mormon. And again, how many times does modern revelation in the Book of Mormon help clarify the Book of Revelation? In the early part of Alma, there's a group called the Amlicites, and the Amlicites want a king. Remember how they've just transitioned from a monarchy to a system of judges, and now they want to go back. And so this man named Amlici wants to be king, and he has a group of followers, and they take a vote, and he's not chosen. But his followers don't accept that. They revolt from the Nephites and they crown him to be king anyway. So now we have an apostate group of Nephites, kind of a, uh, we're leaving. And you see the symbolism with God and Satan. And the first thing that the Amlicites do is they crown Amlicite king. And then the first thing that Amlicite does when he becomes king is he declares war against the Nephites. Now, remember that the majority chose not to follow Amlicites, so the Amlicites are outnumbered and the war doesn't go well and there's a slaughter, and the Nephites destroy the Amlicites. And so they go chasing them and they run off to the Lamanites and join the Lamanites. Now, I want you to just picture this. If the Amlicites are going to join the Lamanites in war, do you see the problem that they have See, the Nephites don't have a problem. The Nephites know the difference between Nephites, Lamanites, and Amlicites. They just fought the Amlicites. Tell me the Nephites don't know who are Amlicites and who are Nephites. So when in the heat of a battle, do I know who to swing my sword at? If I'm a Nephite, will I recognize the difference between a Nephite, a Lamanite, and an Amlicite? Yes, because I know them well. They they know the Lamanites and they know the Nephites. And they know the Amlicites. Okay, so do the Amlicites know who to swing their sword at? Well, clearly they know the difference between their own people, the Amlicites and the Nephites and the Lamanites. So who in this fight is going to be confused? The Lamanites are going to be confused. They don't know the difference between an Amlicite and a Nephite. Look the same to the Lamanites, right? They can't tell an apostate Nephite from a Nephite. They all look the same to me. (laughs) They all look the same. So if I'm a Lamanite and I'm in the heat of a battle and I'm swinging my sword, I'm not going to know the difference between someone who's on my team, meaning the Amlicites, and someone who's not. So the Amlicites have a problem that the Lamanites are confused. So in chapter three, Alma chapter three, I think you all know the story. What do the Amlicites do? Verse four, right? Verse four. They put a mark on their forehead. Now, you can't, you just can't ignore the connection to the book of Revelation here. The Amlicites put a mark on their forehead to distinguish themselves as Lamanites. Now, why a red mark on the forehead? Of all the things they could have put on their foreheads, of all the ways they could have distinguished themselves, why a red mark on their forehead? Verse 4 again. The Amlicites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites." In other words, they took a distinguishing factor, a distinguishing identifying trait of the Lamanites and put it on their forehead as if to say what? We're on your team. Don't destroy us. Let us play in your playground." Do you see how this is exactly like Revelation 13? Except for the fact that maybe the beast doesn't put the mark on us. Maybe we put the mark on ourselves. So what were the Amlicites trying to say? They looked and smelled like Nephites, but they didn't want to be Nephites. They wanted the Lamanites to know that we're on your team, so they picked up a mark of the Lamanites and they put it on the forehead. Now fast forward to our day, there's a lot of people who look like members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who all of a sudden say, I don't want to be known as a member of the church. And so what do they do? They pick up an image of the world and they put it on their forehead. A very, very common one that I see as a teacher is language. If you wanted to all of a sudden say, I've switched teams and I'm no longer on the Lord's team, I'm on the world's team, a very, very easy way to let everyone know is to change your language. You just pick up the world's language. There's certain words that you need to say and if you just mark yourself with those words, everyone will know which team you're fighting for. Everyone will know which team you're on. Our, our appearance, our friends. Sometimes it's tattoos and markings we put on our actual bodies. Sometimes it's an attitude. There's a lot of ways we do it. We mark ourselves. And so I think if we put these stories together, the message here from Revelation chapter 13 is there's all sorts of images that are trying to pretend to be God. They're trying to be powerful and mighty, and they're trying to get you to follow them. And they're going to see if they can get their mark on you. Don't be fooled and put the mark on yourselves. Don't pick up the world's images and put it on you. Instead, pick up the Lord's images. The fun thing about the Book of Mormon is it has the exact opposite. So the Amlicites are Nephites who wanted to be known as Lamanites, so they picked up Lamanite marks. But the Book of Mormon also tells the story about a group of Lamanites who no longer want to be known as Lamanites. They want to be known as Nephites and so they pick up the marks of the Nephites and they put them on them. Alma 27.27 says, they were among the people of Nephi, remember these are the the Lamanites who have converted. They were among the people of Nephi and also numbered among the people who were of the Church of God and they were distinguished for their zeal towards God and also towards men. In other words, they had picked up marks that identified them as believers, and they had, that's how they acted. That's how they lived. They had marked, brothers and sisters, every one of us, every day of our lives are picking up which mark we want in our forehead. If you want Jesus in your life, you will pick up the things that distinguish you as a believer in Christ, and you will put it on your life not just your forehead, your life. You will reflect Him in your attitude, your words, your language, your appearance, your friends, what you do in your free time. You will take the marks of Christ and you will put it on. And I remind you in chapter 14, we're about to see a group of believers who come with the name of the Father written on their forehead in verse 1. But some of us are caught up in the world. Some of us are trying to say to the world, I'm on your team. I want you to know that I'm on your – let me play in your playground. Look, I'm wearing your images. So we pick up the attitudes of the world, the language of the world, the image of the world. We pick it up and we put it on our foreheads and we're trying to say to the world, this is who I am. I am of the world. And so I don't believe the beast puts the mark in our forehead. I believe the Book of Mormon is trying to suggest you get to choose. Whose image do you want? Alma picked up on that theme and he asked, have you been born of God? Have you received His image in your countenance? Have you put Him on? Have you picked Him up? And and Do you wear Him? Do you wear God? Do you wear His attitude? Do you wear His language? Do you wear His covenants? Do you wear Him? or are you caught up in the world and you want the world to know that you play on your team i think this chapter
0: is very very symbolic and very applicable mike yeah i like that i want to talk a little bit about you know what could it possibly mean so 666 i'm going to start and end with i don't know and I'm going to start with what I think is a really simple way to look at it. The number six in scripture is going to represent man without God. Man was made on the sixth day, the seventh day God sanctified it. So that's all good stuff. Three is covenant. So six, 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 it's this idea of man without God. And it's this idea of, we're just going to do it on our own. We don't really need God. Now that being said, I think we're back to punning again. I think that uh, John's kind of giving a raspberry to the Romans, but I think he's also giving it, uh, through the lens of early Jewish literature. And so take it for what it's worth. Like I said, this is the fun stuff about podcasts is we can nerd out and do stuff that you're not going to ever teach us in a lesson, but it's cool stuff to know a couple thoughts. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call this ancient Sudoku. So the Bible scholar, Michael Heiser, I love Michael Heiser stuff. He's not LDS, but man, does he understand content and context of Old Testament and New Testament literature. So if you were a priest in Babylon, they actually had these amulets and they had numbers on them. And I give a picture of one from another author that's gonna reference this. And this amulet had rows of numbers and whether you went horizontal or vertical, each row added up to 111 and there were six of them. And so it's, it, if you add it up, it's 111 times six is six, six, six. And so is John punning on this? Is he saying, don't be like a Babylonian priest? Well, I think this fits with what Bryce is talking about. Cause what is Babylon? I mean, it, like I said, the whole Bible is filled with puns. Remember the tower of Babel the Tower of Babel were where the dummies were, right? We got to leave the Tower of Babel. Well, what is a pun on Babylon? The authors of Genesis are basically giving the raspberry to Babylon. Uh, we do it too in our hymns. O Babylon, O Babylon, we bid thee farewell. We're going to the mountain of Ephraim to dwell. So that's part of what religion does is we give the raspberries to the enemy and or in scholarship, they call that the a polemical text. It's a polemic. It's a, we don't like you and we're better than you. And so that's one way to look at it. Another one, and this is really complicated for if you've never been introduced to this idea in scholarship, but there was the idea anciently that sometimes bad guys or good guys would die and they would come back. And it's really weird, right? Remember Jesus when he's talking to his disciples and he's like, who am I? And they say, well, some say you're this, and some say you're this, and some say you're this guy that died. Some say you're John, and you're coming back. And that was common in the ancient world that people would believe that, hey, maybe this guy's going to come back. Now, take it for what it's worth. There's a bunch of different texts uh, that have a different number for this mark. Um, one of the numbers is 616, and I think I reference this in the show notes. Uh, but look at verse—we're uh, in Revelation 13. Look at verse 17. Actually, no, let's read verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score and six. In some of the variant texts, it says 616. Does it matter? Well, it does if you're a nerd and you like to read this stuff. Like I said, you're not going to do this in class. But there was an emperor whose name was Nero. He was a bad dude, and he dies. And there was a myth called the nero divivus myth, and in this myth, it was this idea that he was going to come back uh, from from the east, from the sea of the east, and, and like I said, we can go way in the weeds in this, but there's this group of texts called the sibling oracles. The Sibylline Oracles were textualized around 80 AD. We think that right around 80 AD, about 10 years after the temple was destroyed. And in the Sibylline Oracles, it talks about this. It talks about Nero coming back. And so a lot of scholars that get into the weeds in this say, hey, the book of Revelation is probably after 80 AD because it's using some of these terms. And if you take Nero's name, and if you've never been introduced to this, it sounds kind of weird, but this is happening. It's happening in Judaism, it's happening in Christianity, they would take your name and they would assign a number to every letter in your name. And there's actually graffiti in the ancient world that says, you know, 317 loves 420 422. And it meant something to these people because they knew their name and they knew their number. Long story short, Nero is 616 numerically. And I kind of write all this stuff out. If you're interested in this stuff, it's it's cool. If not, I totally get it. But There's a lot of ink spilled on this. Like people write papers about this stuff, trying to figure it out. I think it's a multi-level pun. That's what scriptures do. So John is kind of giving the raspberry to Babylon. He's kind of giving the raspberry to Rome and he's like, yay, Jesus. And so I love it. I geek out on this stuff and I think it's fascinating. Um, But essentially, I don't believe that Nero was going to come back from the dead and wreak havoc. But this is my plug for Star Wars. Star Wars is coming out. I'm going to make a prediction. Today is 12, 18, 2019. Star Wars comes out in a couple days. My prediction is this, the evil emperor Palpatine is going to come back. I'm throwing that out there. I know it has nothing to do with the scriptures, but I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm calling it out. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And if you're, if you're listening to us on YouTube, go ahead and write in the comments, Mike, you're an idiot. You're wrong. Palpatine doesn't come back. But if I'm right, put that there too. Write that in the comments. Say hey Mike, you got it right. So anyway, anyway, lots of fun stuff happening in the mark. I will say this too, the word for mark, karagma, it, it means a serpent's bite, but it also can be the mark given putting on a put on a dolos or a slave. So if you were a slave, um, sometimes they'd put a mark on you, and I think that's fascinating. A serpent's bite or a mark. They would put this mark on animals too, like a brand. And as Bryce has been talking about the Amlicites and about covenanting to follow the adversary, and it's the right hand and it's the forehead. The serpent's bite. The serpent or a sting from a scorpion, chragma, or put on a slave. In other words, we... These people are marking themselves to be enslaved to the adversary. And I like Bryce's uh, analogy of they're doing it to themselves. That's the irony here. In this chapter, they make an image to the beast, and the dragon doesn't make it, and the beast doesn't make it. If you read it in the text, it says they make the image. Anyway, I find that fascinating.
1: Don't be fooled by an imitation. Get Jesus in your forehead. Just fill your life with images of Christ, and don't be afraid to stand up. If the world doesn't let us play in their playground, that's okay. That's okay, especially as what we're going to get into our next podcast. We're going to take a look at Zion. What's happening in Zion? You will always have a place in Jesus' kingdom. Thank you for joining us, and we'll end with that, and we'll see you on our next podcast.